Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, which is on page 980, if you're using the blue pew Bibles, and I'll be reading in just a moment from verses 12 through 18. But before we hear from God's Word, let us pray. Lord, we do ask for your help this morning. Once again, we need to be reminded of your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to your Word, and for it to do its work. And the first work it needs to do is in our own hearts. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. All of us for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. Again, I'll be beginning in verse 12, page 980. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of our Lord. Now, we all have moments in our lives where things don't go according to plan. And all of a sudden, our entire futures seem in jeopardy. Whether it's a failed exam, a lost job, the passing of a loved one, a church conflict, rejection from a loved one, or another bout of depression, the list can go on and on and on. But it's true that when hardship comes, despair is close at hand. Now, when we began this letter a few weeks ago, I noted that one of the central themes of the letter of the Philippians is this command to rejoice. And, and it's not just Paul giving the Philippians a pat on the back and saying, you know, one day things will get better and then you'll be happy. No, he, he's commanding them. It is an instruction to rejoice in the Lord always. And already in this letter, we come to a, a circumstance as Paul begins the main body of the letter, here's a circumstance where Paul's present situation is at odds with this command to rejoice. In fact, I think it is the circumstance that prompted 
the writing of this letter. It is Paul's imprisonment. And he's writing the Philippians to instruct them how they are to think about the events that have unfolded in Paul's life. You may remember, if you weren't here in the evening, I'll remind you that, that the Philippian church is sort of a supporting church of Paul. He came, he preached the gospel, helps plant this church, and they are sending him out, sending him gifts to provide for his ministry. And now they've heard that he's in prison once again, don't know exactly which imprisonment. Paul doesn't say, but we know that he's been in prison, and so they send him this gift to help provide for his needs. And along with that gift, Paul hears of their desperation, hears about their fear over his future, and he's writing in response to that fear. They're worried. What's going to happen to Paul's gospel ministry, the ministry that we're partnering with him? Is it, is it going to be put to an end? Doesn't prison mean that less people are going to come to faith through him? And doesn't prison mean that Paul might eventually be put to death? So we're going to cover the topic of Paul's death in the next sermon, but in this sermon, what I want us to see is that Paul is writing to help the Philippians to see one glorious overarching truth, that God is unwaveringly committed to the effectiveness of his word and the joy of the church. God is unwaveringly committed to the effectiveness of his word and the joy of the church. Let us look at that first half, God's commitment to his word. His faithfulness here is demonstrated that even in the confines of prison, Paul is seeing more and more people hear the gospel. The, the hatred of the world and the plans of the devil have converged together into what by all worldly means, should have been a foolproof way of slowing the spread of the gospel. All of Paul's opponents were thinking, look, Paul's out there in the synagogues, on the street corners, preaching about Jesus. Well, then let's put him somewhere where he, he can't talk to anyone, somewhere that's going to keep him quiet. But instead of keeping him quiet, Paul's imprisonment has had the exact opposite effect that his opponents hoped it would. More people are hearing the gospel because they threw him in jail. See, every few hours, a new rotation of guards would come in and watch over Paul's cell, watch over Paul, make sure he's not trying to escape. And you can hear Paul saying to himself, good. More people that I get to tell about Jesus. What an opportunity he has before him. Paul is so committed to the task of getting the good news out that an entire garrison of troops and more now know that Paul is in chains because he is in Christ. And he gets to elaborate on what that means day after day after day as they get to continue to hear the gospel. And presumably, some of these captors come to faith. They believe. 
At, at the end of the letters, Paul is sending greetings to the Philippians. He tells them that the saints in Caesar's own house sends their greetings, making us assume that as Paul's preaching to these guards, some of these guards are hearing that then they're going into Caesar's household and some of them are hearing. And so because of Paul's circumstance in prison, more people are coming to faith in Christ. And, and this work of God, this faithfulness of God to his message is the foundation for a faithful gospel witness. Hopefully, we are all people that want to be committed to the work of evangelism in our communities, continue the work of evangelism on the campus. But all of that begins with a confidence that God will do the work. That if we are faithful to proclaim the message, he will be faithful to do the work. And so often we shrink away from this task of evangelism for truthful because we're afraid, right? We're afraid that we're going to be rejected. People will say no, that bridges might get burnt. Afraid that we'll say the wrong thing. We won't have the right answer to a question. We'll, we'll ruin that opportunity. Afraid that there might be repercussions, that campus might become more closed off, that our coworkers might start filing complaints, that neighbors won't talk to us. Let me just tell you, some of those things, most of those things, they, they may happen. They, they probably will happen to some degree. But even when they happen, none of those factors will be able to stop others from coming to faith. Your faithfulness to proclaim the gospel message will still bear fruit because God is the one who is producing the fruit. There are people in your lives that God has ordained to come to faith. And if you can pray, if you can formulate just even a few coherent sentences about what God is doing in your life, then you can be a faithful evangelist. God's not calling you to be systematic theologians. Just simple explanations of grace and your experience of that grace. That is what Paul, or what God is calling you to do. Be faithfulness in those small things, trusting that he will bring the fruit. So Paul knew people were going to reject him. We have evidence of that here in this letter. He knew there were dangers, but he also knew that God would give some ears to hear the message, and so he spoke, trusting there are people that will believe. So may we, as God's people, have the same encouragement to speak, because we too know that God will be faithful when we do. God is faithful to his word. Now, as we consider the way in which Paul, or which God, providentially used Paul for the gospel, there are three responses to Paul's imprisonment that, that I want us to consider this morning as well. 
right? We see God's faithfulness in it all, but we also see three ways that different groups are responding to the way God is working in Paul's life. The, the first group that I want us to look at are the brothers. Paul says that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, now Paul's use of language here is very important. The, the brothers aren't sort of having this this rally, this you know team meeting and saying, hey guys, we got to go out there and do this for Paul. Our star player is hurt. We need to rally together, give our best effort, and go win the game. That's not the way exactly they're responding. Paul says that they have grown in boldness to speak the word without fear because they are confident in the Lord because of Paul's imprisonment. So, so why has their confidence grown in the Lord even as Paul has been thrown into prison? Doesn't quite make sense on the face. You would think this was what the opponents were hoping would happen. Well, Paul's been in prison. We're going to shut them up. Well, they're going to be afraid they're going to jail. And Paul's saying that the exact opposite has happened for the brothers as well. Why is that? It's because the brothers are seeing firsthand God's commitment to his word. They're, they're seeing God's faithfulness play out in the life of Paul and the fruit that his ministry is still bearing even in prison. They're personally experiencing the reality of Paul's ministry continuing to bear fruit. See, it is one thing to sort of conceptually know that God is faithful, to know about God's sovereignty, to, to understand the history of God working throughout the Bible and his faithfulness. We need to have those conceptual understandings. We, we need to have that theological framework. But it is another thing altogether to understand those concepts and then to see them playing out before your very eyes. The knowledge that they have of God's sovereignty is now being forged into a greater trust in God because they're once again seeing what they know about God is actually true. You, you see how that works? They don't just have a conceptual knowledge now. They're, they're, they're experiencing that knowledge in reality, and they're growing in their trust that God really is faithful because they're experiencing that faithfulness. And I hope that as we see this playing out between Paul and these brothers, that we also are encouraged to, to never underestimate the impact that, that we have on the greater body when we walk in faithfulness, trusting in God during times when the exact opposite would seem to make more sense. Some of the times that I have been most encouraged in my Christian walk, encouraged to, to, to worship God, to, to believe in his promises, to, to love him more, is when I can see brothers and sisters who are going through incredible sufferings and to say tears in their eyes and grief in their heart, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. Or to say like King David did as he's running for his life from his son, say, let the Lord see, do what seems good to him. Whatever happens to me, I'm going to trust that the Lord is doing what is best. Seeing that type of, of faith encourages my faith. I'm sure it encourages your faith. That type of interaction is the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 that Neil is now preaching through in the mornings. It's, it's the whole point of why we're commanded to gather together with the body. It's because these truths are easy to forget if, if you're just living life on your own. I think on this side of eternity, when we still see God's glory dimly, if we ignore our faith, our faith will continue to grow dim as well. And so then if church attendance just becomes a matter of, of convenience, what the schedule is like that week, if you're neglecting fellowship with other believers because there's just too much going on, or you just don't really like people that much. If you're just doing the lone Christianity, you probably will not make it through this life, living out your faith on your own. Even our Lord himself looked to the prayers of his closest friends in his hour of greatest need. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested and crucified, facing all of God's wrath for sin. So he comes to Peter and James and John. He says, guys, can you just stay up with me for one hour and pray with me, please? He's calling on his friends to support him and his faith in his greatest hour of need. And when your hour comes, and it will come, who is going to stay up with you and pray? If you've neglected the body, if you've pushed everyone away, who is going to be the example that's going to serve to bolster your faith? When the angry mob comes for these brothers in Philippi as they continue proclaiming the gospel, they'll have Paul. They'll have their brother who they've worked side by side with as an example to them to continue on in the faith. They've seen his faithfulness, and they're going to be encouraged to continue on boldly because of him. Because they've seen God working through him, God answering Paul's prayers and his faithfulness. So they'll continue on as well. We need each other more than we know. So do not neglect the importance of faithful Christian community, both for your own faith and for the impact that you have on the faith of others. And let me also encourage us that this does not just happen in these sort of supernatural acts of heroism. Think, okay, fine, when my time to be a martyr comes, I will stand up for Jesus, and I'll be a shining light to the church. That, no, there are many more acts of faithfulness that we can do to be a light to the church. Don't underestimate the impact that your everyday ordinary faithfulness has on one another. Think, 
moms, you all come to church each week with babies, with messy, wriggly, oftentimes not liking the sermon through the end, babies. And, and you keep coming back week after week after week, and you keep bringing the babies. And you may think, yeah, that I do that. And you think, it's kind of a hassle. But do you know what the rest of us think? It tells the rest of us that you think there is something so valuable about gathering with God's people to hear God's word that you're going to endure a few years of Wrigley babies. You're going to go through the effort of bringing those kids each week as they're wriggling and as they grow, teaching them that there's something valuable here to be learned as well. That faithfulness, that proclaims something to the rest of us. Kids, I have a confession to make to you. I thought when we started Sunday school a few weeks ago that there were going to be a lot of kids downstairs sort of grumbly, grumbly marching up the steps, complaining, thinking, I don't want to go to class. That's going to be boring. And what have you all done? You've run up the stairs, gladly running into your classrooms, ready to learn. Your faithfulness to, to want to know about Jesus tells me, hopefully tells the rest of the church, that there is something valuable that we have to teach you and that you actually want to learn. You, you want to trust in Jesus as well. Little acts of faithfulness that we may not even think about throughout our weeks are proclaiming God's faithfulness, God's goodness to one another. So again, let us be encouraged to continue this faithfulness, to be an encouragement to one another. The second response to Paul's imprisonment, first was the confidence of the brothers, and now we see the jealousy of the others. And these hits will keep on coming, let me promise you. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy, and rivalry. Paul goes on, verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Literally saying, thinking that they are going to add pressure to my chains, that that's going to tighten the ratchets on my chains. Now, there is some debate amongst scholars, whether these preachers were from a different sect of Christianity, maybe it was the Judaizers. Don't think that's the case. It seems clear from Paul's response that they weren't teaching a different gospel, like they, the Judaizers were in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul uses very graphic language and issues a stark warning about their message. Here, Paul doesn't issue a warning. So we at least know whatever group they were a part of, they were preaching the true gospel, that they were preaching Christ, him crucified. So they have the same message as Paul, but there is still something that sets them apart from Paul, and that is namely their selfish ambition. The reading of this text suggests that, that they are in part the group mentioned in verse 14 that were emboldened to preach the word. Right? Paul's in prison. People 
preach the word. But their emboldenment, they're not preaching as a response to Paul's obedience and the strengthening of their faith. They see Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for them to gain a bigger following now that Paul is out of the way. They're hoping that now that Paul is sidelined in jail, unable to preach in public, that that they're going to have more success and that their success is actually going to cause Paul more pain. Thinking, ah, he's going to get jealous of us because we're having all this opportunity and he doesn't. And that response to Paul's imprisonment is, is quite frankly disgusting. That that men, maybe women who, who are feeling called to go and evangelize, to pr- proclaim Christ with their community, with their neighbor and their city, they have missed the point of that calling all together. Paul isn't doing this to gain notoriety or to gain prestige. He's doing this to save those who are facing the wrath of God. He he wants his hearers to share in the same grace that he himself experienced while he was putting Christians to death. As God comes to him and forgives him, he wants everyone to know that type of forgiveness. And it's that desire for people to experience grace themselves that allows Paul to respond in the remarkable way that he does. See, think he's he's helping the Philippians again, who are evidently distressed and upset at these rival preachers. He's helping the Philippians to understand the situation by by getting their eyes off of this petty competition and getting it onto the actual matter at hand, which is the advance of the gospel. He's helping the Philippians see, listen, Christ is being proclaimed. The gospel is going out. Their motives, you don't worry about that. You're going to let God deal with that. You rejoice. I'm rejoicing because more people get to hear the gospel. So that's why Paul responds to the Philippians the way he does. But we ought to be reminded that there is no room for this type of pettiness in Christ's church. We do not participate in Christ's kingdom to build our own little feudal societies. I think too many Christians, they, they acknowledge that they are doing their work for the Lord when they're really trying to make their name great. They're working for the praise of man and not the joy of their master. So, so think about your own life and all of the subtle ways that we're tempted to do all of our Christian activities and all of our faithfulness for the praise of others. Do you parent so that people will tell you what a good job you're doing? I can't believe how well behaved your kids are. Or do you parent so that your kids will grow up to follow the Lord and be faithful church members? Do you sign up for committees so that you can feel important and have control because you just care about the mission of the church. You want to help the mission go forward. Do we do evangelism so that as somebody 
maybe stands up in front of the church one day and shares her testimony that ah, you get to that part where you get to hear your name. You are the one that God used in their life. Or do we do evangelism so that they get to hear the name of Jesus? Do we invite people to church and help the church to grow so that we can outgrow the congregation down the street? Or because we want people to grow in their faith? Preacher, do you preach and teach so that people will tell you, oh, how much your sermon has changed my life and what an impact you had on me? Or do we simply preach because we want lives to be changed? Not for our sake, but for the sake of God's people. All of these things, God warns us. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I give to no other. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be careful. The church is not the place where you come to seek your own glory. There are no rivalries between Christians, between ministries, between churches. Think that's why when we serve communion, we fence the table, or we say, if you're part of any Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, you're welcome to this table. This isn't Good Shepherd's table. It's, it's a way to demonstrate our understanding of the universality of the church and the union that we have with one another. I think I am thankful for every single faithful church in this city. I wish there were more faithful churches in this city. Even if it means Good Shepherd never grows to a thousand people, that's a good thing. We need more faithful churches to reach more people with the gospel. I also lament the unfaithful ones. I wish they'd repent. I wish they would grow. But for all the pastors out there, all the churches that are are faithfully proclaiming the gospel week after week after week, that are leading people into holiness, that are helping them sanctify themselves and doing all of this for the glory of God, for every church out there like that, say thank you. Praise the Lord. Keep up the good work. Good Shepherd does not exist for the sake of Good Shepherd for the sake of Pastor Neil or Pastor Ryan or the elders, for any one of us to boast in ourselves. Good Shepherd exists for the glory of God and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That is the purpose for every church. There are no rivalries. We aren't trying to outdo one another in church growth. We outdo one another in showing honor. All to the glory of God. Let us not be like these petty brothers who are seeking their own glory, seeking their own success to cause pain upon their brother. Third, Paul says, what then? What are we going to do about this? How do we respond to this? It says only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see the stark contrast between these two types of preachers. One sees the downfall of another as an opportunity 
for themselves. One sees the success of others as a reason to rejoice. And Paul rejoices not just because he's a humble, selfless guy and he's just a good person. Maybe that's part of why he rejoices. The main reason he rejoices, though, is that his chief concern is the proclamation of the gospel. That's what he wants most out of his life. And so the fact that he sees it happening leads him to rejoice. Which brings me to the final point, which ties all of this sermon back together. Remember I said that the main idea, the main point of this passage is that God is unwaveringly committed to the effectiveness of his word, but it's also to the joy of his church. But the joy of the church will only be fulfilled if, like Paul, our chief concern is the proclamation and the ministry of the word. And and by ministry of the word, I mean that in its broadest sense, not just evangelistically, though yes, evangelistically, but I also mean it in all of life. Think of all of the kingdom work as ministry of the word. It's it's a word that's doing the work to sanctify us, to grow us, to teach us, to instruct us. That's what our chief aim should be, is that God, through his work, will establish his people, will, will reach the lost, and raise them up in obedience. That that's what our chief aim as a church and as Christians ought to be. And so, as we then want to see a robust ministry of the word, want to see it having an impact in people's lives, pointing them to Christ, God is going to cause that work to bear fruit And when it does, we will rejoice. But if Paul's main concern is his health, if his main concern is his safety, if his main concern is his reputation, if it's his success, if it is anything else, then yes, prison is going to be an affliction that he cannot bear. If he is in this life, for any reason other than the proclamation of the word and the glory of God when he is thrown in jail, he's going to think, I can't can't do this. God's going to be against me. Likewise, if your main desire in this life is that life will be easy, that it will go well for you, that you will have success, then your desires at some point are going to be unmet. And when they're unmet, you're not going to be able to rejoice. You're going to think, why is there anything for me to feel good about right now? God has just taken everything from me. And I'm not saying this to minimize the pain when he does take things away. But if you love Jesus, then life doesn't actually hurt. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this to help us reorient our priorities in life. Your joy will be fulfilled only when your joy is found in Christ. When, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, 
you comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When you get to that place and you understand that is your God, you understand all that he has done for you, that nothing can affect your salvation. Nothing can cause you to be disowned from him or disinherited from him. When you get to that place, and that is what you want the most, then there is nothing that can steal your joy. You can still rejoice amidst the greatest sorrows of your life. Because the trials of life, the earthly sorrows, cannot take away your heavenly reward. And so every day, there, for all of us, even the most sanctified person, there needs to be a reorienting of our greatest love, of our greatest desire. It needs to be in Christ. We need to set our eyes on what awaits us in heaven more than what we want on this earth. And until then, you will suffer and you will hate God for it. You will hurt and you will be bitter because God is not giving you what you most want. You think God has taken what is most dear to you instead of remembering, I still have my greatest treasure. I still have Christ. He's still mine. I am still his. and I still have my eternal reward. Paul could have lamented that his ministry was over. But he saw all that the Lord was still doing through him and through others, that God was still in control. The word was still doing its work. And so he rejoiced. And may we continue to see God through that same lens, that he is still in control, that he is still doing his work, and that we can rejoice as well. Let us pray. Lord, this is a fight to believe these things, especially when in your providence, some of the earthly joys of life are taken away. And we know that in your providence, you have a purpose in this. And often that purpose is to draw us closer to you, to set our eyes on what our greatest hope is, what our most firm foundation is, our God who has made us his by the blood of his son. Oh, would you help us set our hearts on you and rejoice in your gospel. Pray all of this in your name. Amen.